0: You're listening to Queers, a podcast about politics and culture with Simon Copland and Benjamin Riley.
1: It's the 17th of February 2016. I'm Simon Copland. I'm Benjamin Riley. And welcome to Queers. Each episode, we feel our way through questions on a theme. And this week, we're talking about love.
0: It was Valentine's Day over the weekend, of course, so love was in the air. Naturally, uh, over the weekend, a number of gay and lesbian organisations and advocates from Australian Marriage Equality, which is the the biggest uh, marriage lobby in the country, to Michelle Obama, who sent uh, Simon a a lovely kind of personalised email along with, I'm sure, millions of other people. Uh, They wanted to use this message of love to advocate for
1: equality for gays and lesbians. Uh, This got Ben and I thinking about the role of relationships in love in queer politics today over recent years, particularly as marriage equality has become the most important issue for many queer people, love has been put at the forefront of queer rights. We now talk about equal love, with advocates often arguing that queer rights are just about the right for people to love who they want. But we want to ask, what does this mean for our movement and our community? What is it like as someone who is single and queer? Uh, What role does sex play in this equality? And what does it mean to be queer beyond relationships and even your sexuality? So let's get started. Ben, what role should love play in queer politics? And has that role been overemphasised?
0: What role should love play in queer politics? It's interesting. I recently read uh, for the first time Dennis Altman's Homosexual Liberation and Oppression, which is a a seminal um, gay text from the uh, the early 70s by an Australian writer, mostly writing about radical queer, queer activists in new york in the early 70s late 60s early 70s and i mean some of it is really fascinating was really fascinating to me kind of what is just completely completely different from narratives we have around queer politics now and one of the biggest one is like a lot of it is kind of um he talks a lot about this idea of uh moving towards different ways of of loving and relationships should mm-hmm. be a kind of central part of uh, queer political movements. He talks a lot about, like, the idea of kind of communal love or, like, community love. So he talks a bit about, like, child-rearing in the context of, like, communities, um, and, and he sees the kind of, you know, obviously his views would have changed quite a bit now, but, you know, back in 1971 or 72 or whenever it was, um, he talks about a kind of sexual utopia, that the thing we should be moving towards is this... this uh, place where people kind of move between relationships and uh, sexualities even and that you know sex is potentially just a part of any human relationship and doesn't necessarily define um, romantic relationships uh, that everything is kind of much more the possibilities are kind of much more open I guess both in terms of like sexual orientation and love. So, I mean, that obviously stands in, in very stark contrast to what is at the centre of the movement now, which mm-hmm. is this this symbol of two people who really love each other and, and what's wrong with that and, um, you know, that's what we should be fighting to protect. And that also being a kind of fundamental expression of, of queer identity, being really at the heart of, of political movements like the marriage equality movement. I mean, that raises all sorts of kind of questions and problems. In terms of what role should love play, and has the role it currently plays been overemphasized? I think the question to ask first of all is: Can we identify, I guess, harms arising out of love being at the the, the center of queer political movements and the dominance, for example, of the marriage equality movement at the heart of, of queer political movements in in a country like Australia? I mean, what would you what would you say to that, Simon?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think this uh, opens up. Uh sort of one of the other questions that we'd flagged um, before we started and this is probably a natural, uh, naturally was something we were going to have to, to address really early um, and that is we were, we were thinking about sort of what I was thinking about was what are the norms that we have around love and have we bought in, where have those norms come from and have we bought into those norms as a movement. Um, so I think um, if you look, I mean everyone, we have these sort of Narratives that we tell about about love that sort of infiltrate all of our society, and that's this sort of idea that you you grow up and you meet the the love of your dreams. It's sort of this magical fate based thing that there's one person who is for you, and that this love is romantic and amazing and lovely, and it's linear. It's for you know you you have a you meet as kids or you know you meet as young adults, and then you get married and you have kids and you live happily ever after. And there's a whole range of norms around that, um, and Those norms have, um, in my view, particular meanings behind them and particular reasons they exist, um, and they exist historically uh, and we can go into this quite a bit if we wanted to, um, but maybe that's not not how much, we're, not not the direction we're going to take. But you know, we, they, they go they go historically back to a time in which uh, relationships were changing with the rise of of capitalism and a, and a more global society, and um, a lot of people were fearful about the idea of sexuality exploding in the way you discussed um, around you know, that, that Dennis discussed in in his book, uh, and that that you know the 70s wasn't the first time when people were having this conversation that was happening back in the 17-1800s and a lot of the norms around love were created, were, were manufactured by, by elites in order to to dampen a lot of those discussions. Uh, and so coming back to where we are now, I think that the the issue is not necessarily love itself. In fact, I'm a big advocate for love and I'm a big advocate for the ideals of love and I think that it should play a great role in our movement because it is part of what our movement is. It's those questions around the norms and how we how and why we've resolved we've ended up in these sorts of norms that talk about this monogamous you know, couple who have the you know the fate-based interaction where they they magically meet each other you know the one in seven billion person that you magically meet and fall in love with and that's who you're who you who you're living live with ever after
0: I mean it's very much worth saying and and I suppose you touched on it just then that these kinds of norms that we have around love and relationships I mean they affect everyone I mean they're, they're hardly unique to to queer political movements I think what makes this particularly worthy of discussion and and worthy of scrutiny is how much those norms have changed for queer political movements over the past 40 years and have perhaps gone in maybe the opposite direction to the way they have for heterosexual people I mean maybe that's debatable maybe heterosexual people were kind of going through the same like had the same kind of sexual liberation stuff in the 70s and that's been kind of rolled back as well but I think the contrast can hardly be considered so um, stark as it is when you look at the kind of gay liberation movements and now the kind of marriage equality movement I mean it's like a
1: complete 180. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, and I think that that is the thing that's worthy of discussing here and 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 I think you talking about Dennis's book was a really good way to start this because that is the contrast that we see and there's some really interesting questions about why that has happened and whether that's a good or a bad thing and I mean I think that's where we should maybe we should head in this conversation um, because I think that's a really interesting fact why do you think it has happened and why do you think we've gotten from the stage where we were in Dennis's time in the 70s in that liberation to where we are now
0: Mm. (laughs) This is a question that's so kind of wrapped up in in kind of everything about queer politics and, and the ways that it has change since the 70s and just kind of identity politics generally. I mean, I think another, you know, not to, I'm always wary of, of doing this too much, but another <laughs> really important caveat to make here is that queer political movements and gay political movements are not queer people and gay people. Mm-hmm. And, and and everyone who you talk to who was kind of involved in, in political, everyone I've spoken to at least, who was involved in these political movements uh, back in the, the 60s and 70s is always emphasising the fact that this was not by any means even a majority of queer people who were involved in, in gay liberation. I mean, it was a very particular cultural movement, it was a very particular political movement, but it was certainly the most visible queer political movement of the time. And yeah. I think that, again, kind of makes it worthy of contrast to the most visible queer gay political movement of our time, which which I would say is, is, is certainly the, the marriage equality movement.
1: Yeah, and, and just, as, just as you say that not everybody... Who's queer is involved in the marriage equality movement or believes in the marriage equality movement and or is engaged in it. And so I guess we're talking here about the sort of visibility of these movements, not necessarily about queer people as individuals.
0: Hmm. I mean, in terms of how has this happened, there are, I mean, there are a, a few different theories. I mean, this is something that I think about a lot. I think to some degree, it's an inevitable product of... The increasing dominance of of kind of neoliberal ideologies that you know a move away from ideas of kind of communal relationships and and uh the idea of love being a much more kind of a move towards the idea of love as a, a, a sort of product i guess like a a, a love as capital i suppose mm-hmm. um certainly fits broadly with political movements so so again I think you know it. There are other theories I think you can go into about why it's changed so particularly in in gay communities, but you can't discount this simply being also part of a shift a political shift that everyone has kind of seen in 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 kind of western countries like australia i mean would you would you agree with that simon
1: yeah, I mean I think that there's lots of different reasons for it um and I think that there's um some really interesting stuff to to unpack. I think I agree with your analysis in relation to the sort of dominant neoliberal agenda. And I think it's really interesting to see the interplay and this is something I'd like to talk into more of of the sort of liberation movement in the 70s and the rise of neoliberalism in the mid to late 70s and going into the 80s and how gay movements adopted to that, particularly as then you got hit with the HIV crisis, which sort of impacted a lot of that sexual liberation feeling. Um, but I think that there is also a co-option of... Um, of the gay movement from conservatives and capitalists, um, in terms of uh, seeing the impact it's having, the positive impact the movement was having, and then using its language to create family structures, gay families, to, to help shape family, gay structures, sorry, gay family structures, other way around, uh, that fit into into social norms a lot, a lot better. Uh, and and this is where you come to see people like. Uh, the the adoption of uh, of of love based messaging from conservatives in particular who 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 come out in favour of gay marriage and use that messaging a lot um, and reinforce norms of monogamy and reinforce norms of of sort of the family unit as we see it but just but in their minds just replace it with t- to parents of the same sex or to people of the same sex, um, because that is useful to those people. It it sort of recognises that the, the strength of the movement and the ability for it, that that it's going to create change and it, it allows it it adopts it into a into a norm that works for them. Um, but then there's also on top of that there's a, a a strategic decision that was made by a lot of higher up uh, sort of mainstream gay organisations. Um, that really emphasised love as as the strategy, and so I went to an event last year um, in Berlin where one of the one of, one of an organizer, in one of the key campaigns in the United States, um, spoke about the strategy. So it was sort of like a uh, US, it was US, you know, has just one same-sex marriage. How can Germany do it? Because Germany doesn't have same-sex marriage yet, uh, and he spoke specifically about um, uh, it would have been maybe. Coming on 10 years ago, maybe maybe a bit less than that. Specifically about research that they had found and used, where they realised that a lot of the messaging that they weren't that they were using wasn't working uh, in terms of equal rights, in terms of stuff around you know the legal rights and all of that sort of stuff. Uh, and their messaging, he specifically said uh, that he specifically said our research found that love was the best message that we could use. Um, that emphasizing emphasizing love was the best message we can use, and so they spread that around a lot of the movements. And you can see a a, a very strategic usage use of love to emphasize same sex marriage. And wow. and it really really and if you watch, look if you look at it, you can see that coming across in a lot of a lot of um, gay marriage campaigns and organisations where they that that sort of term equal love really became prominent. Um, And I think if I go back to when I was first politically engaged 10 years ago, and first engaged in these sorts of issues, I can't remember it being as dominant as it is now, where everything is spoken about in terms of love-based framing, um, which is different to where it was in the past.
0: Wow. I mean, it's it's fascinating to me to kind of hear, it's and, and so kind of rare to hear somebody so cynically, like, outline a strategy like that. Mm. I mean, I feel like what I see happen more often is that we find these kind of uh, narratives to use retroactive to retroactively explain kind of where we are now, um, to kind of look back and go. And I'm fascinated with how particularly that plays out around um, the AIDS crisis, uh, there was a really great a great article, a kind of re- I mean, review, critique, analysis of uh, the norm- the film of The Normal Heart by mm-hmm. Dion Kagan, who's a uh, an Australian um, queer cultural scholar. And he wrote uh, this kind of fantastic piece a few years ago now about how the film kind of really reinforces this idea. Like, it, it allows AIDS to foreground... Um, or to to what's the word like foreshadow marriage um, yep. in a way in a way that is that is kind of very much retroactive you know this idea that gay communities were kind of punished with with death I mean literally with death for um, for promiscuity I mean this is this is the narrative I'm not I'm not saying this is uh, this is I something I anyway yeah. agree with and that the marriage equality movement is a kind of you know we 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 suffered for our sins we came out the other side of that and. Uh, you know, now we are proving to broader society that we deserve to to exist, essentially, mm. and that and that marriage, uh, and you know, marriage is the kind of um, is the the tool through which we we offer that we it's our it's our penance, you know, for 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 what
1: happened. Yeah, um, absolutely, and I, and I think that that the two work really well together, and I think that the AIDS crisis was used effectively by a number of different people, conservatives, and some conservative, you know, what I would consider more conservative gay rights activists, um, to shape that sort of narrative that coming out of it uh, into the 90s and 2000s, where that narrative of of penance, I guess, um, or, you know, or, you know, we sort of did the sexual liberation, it didn't work, almost. Uh, And so this is, this is what we have to do next. We have to be the the good monogamous couples who have lifelong relationships and create family units and live out in the suburbs. And that's who we are now. Um, and so that all of those interactions play out together to create the situation we have now.
0: Hmm. I mean, and again, and as I as I said, I'm I'm quite skeptical of the idea that, or, or I'm I'm critical of the extent to which that did actually shape the kind of current way we talk about um, mm-hmm. marriage. I think in a lot of ways, it's just like a convenient. Like retconning of history, essentially a convenient yeah, way yeah. to retroactively explain how we are now. Because I, I don't, I don't think. Um, I mean, marriage. As far, <laughs> you know, obviously we're two gay guys in their twenties, so it, some, um, you know, uh, we we have to be careful uh, talking talking about things we we obviously didn't live through. Uh, but as mm-hmm. I understand it, I mean, marriage just was it wasn't even on the table um, twenty five years ago. I mean, people just weren't talking about it, and that's you know even. Uh, you know, at, towards the kind of tail end of, of the AIDS crisis, people weren't talking about it. Um, and I, I remember when I was um, working as a journalist at the, the Star Observer um, queer community newspaper, I was going through the archive. We did these kind of like from the archives things, which I really enjoyed doing them because they just let me go and read through old editions of the paper. Um, yeah, that sounds like fun. Oh my God, it's so much fun. And <laughs> I found an old issue that's like a, a very similar to something that w- the the paper still does now which i think is really great which kind of uh have a set um series of questions com- coming up to a, a political campaign state-based or or, or federal yeah. um, a set of questions around different policy areas they send the same set of questions to like a number of different candidates in particular seats uh and get back there or, or to just parties themselves and get back the responses and 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 let the electorate, I guess, just look side by side at the different responses yep, yep. and seeing the contrast between which issues were put down then and now is fascinating. And one of the things that's there that we just would never even talk about now um, that really kind of dominated this survey in, I think it was in like 1990 or maybe mm-hmm. slightly later, was... And this uh, will we'll lead back into an- another issue I think we're keen to talk about taxation benefits for single people. So there's a whole oh, section about what, how will you improve like taxation so that people who are single aren't like screwed because they can't like benefit from you know all the tax benefits that couples get.
1: Whether with married or de facto, that's that's really fascinating to hear that being such a prominent issue in in queer communities and in in, in in a magazine like the Star Observer because nobody would talk about that today at all. Nobody is talking about it at all. And, and, and i think that says a lot i guess about these discussions we're having about the the increasing dominance of relationships even not just love but relationships as a whole within queer politics and within these sort of mm. mainstream movements and, and the media um and i guess that leads us to the sort of one of the other questions we were thinking about is sort of and i think we flagged this before are there negative impacts to this dominance of um love-based narrative um and what are they what you know, does do, what do you think? Does, for example, someone who's single uh, lose out because of this? Well, to, I mean, to think about my own experience, uh,
0: one of the I just wanted to say quickly about this, um, this stuff in the Star Observer mm-hmm. is that uh, you know, again, to offer another another caveat um, <laughs> within the context of us not having been there, it's uh it's hard to know whether that line of questioning wasn't just a kind of sneaky backdoor way to kind of go, well, we're never going to get marriage, you know, so this is a compromise yeah we can't kind of rule that out either i suppose um but i I suppose to, to to think about my own experience of of um the harms of 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 uh political movement that focuses so heavily on relationships um i mean i remember like being you know sort of desperately single for like most of my uh most of my early 20s and and Uh, you know, didn't have my first serious relationship until I was um, in my mid-20s, like 25 or 26. Mm -hmm. And um, I felt, I mean, it was kind of horrible. I mean, I I felt entirely excluded from a political identity, I suppose. I felt like I couldn't be legitimately gay if I wasn't in a relationship. You know, in a country like Australia it's pretty, it well, it's pretty rare. Well, certainly for me, you know, I don't often experience homophobia just on the street out and about mm-hmm. um, the very few occasions when I have, it has always been because I have been like holding hands with a partner in a public place basically. And so, you know, if, if I'm kind of sitting there as a like 22 year old gay guy going you know, well, I'm not any, any kind, experiencing any kind of overt homophobia. Like, I'm not waiting to get married. I'm not, I can't point to ways I'm kind of actively being discriminated against. I mean, does that mean that I'm not really gay in a political sense? I mean, what do I do with that? I mean, and that was quite a, mm. you know, at, at a time in my life that was, I was kind of, um, as I, say, I think a lot of young queer people are, very sort of vulnerable in a lot of ways. I mean, that's a it's a horrible thing to kind of pile on top of that, to feel excluded from the very movement that you feel you should be able to draw strength from.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's a really interesting one and sort of perspective that I do not have at all. So to give the context, I've been in a relationship um, since just after I turned 18. We're coming out close to our 10-year uh, anniversary. Um, so I've never really been a gay adult and been single. Uh, well, I've never, you know, I spent like a week being a gay adult, being single, uh, practically. Uh, so that is not an experience that I've ever had, and it's, and but it, but, it makes me think about, I guess, the the expectations we have not just in gay communities, but in society as a whole about relationship, uh, being in relationships, and the the the. the the um, importance we place on relationships as not just a sense of what our society is but a sense of who you are as a human being you know the even the whole idea of the whole idea of having a second half as Mm. if you are not a whole until you have your second half um, thing really interests me and it's interesting to hear that um, being specified into a into a into a queer community and, and shaping queer identity where I think you're probably right that a lot of queer identity are Identity now gets shaped around the relationship and not about who you are as a person, who you're attracted to, who you might be having sex with, where you're going, what sort of clubs you're going to, etc. 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 It's being shaped largely around that relationship status instead. Um, Yeah, I mean, do you have anything more to add on that? Like, I'm intrigued.
0: Uh, Talking about all those kind of other things that potentially define what it is to be. We're, and and this is a, I mean, this is a huge topic. Oh and, yeah. And one that we, I'm sure we won't be able to dig into too deeply today, but we can take uh, some
1: notes and do it another time. Yeah, <laughs> do I mean, more it be, of it
0: another time. It would be great to to come back to this kind of thing, but I I know plenty of gay people who would argue that a lot of those things that you listed, I mean, not sex so much, but but. Um, culture and identity, I suppose, mm-hmm. are not relevant to queer political movements or LGBTI political movements that, you know, the kind of, I think of them as the kind of the happens-to-be's. Um, you know, people who are just like, you know, this is just about my sexual orientation, who I have sex with, who I'm attracted to, uh, is just one aspect of me and doesn't define me in any other way outside mm. of, you know, what what gets me hard, basically. Um, <laughs> and, I mean, that is... If you are someone who has that view, then this love-based messaging and the kind of dominance of, of relationships in queer politics makes a lot of sense and is actually kind of a legitimate political tactic. Mm-hmm. It's something that I would rail against. Not, I mean, not just the, the, the prominence of love-based messaging and, and relationships in queer politics, but even the idea that who I am uh, and how I live my life is not informed um, by my sexuality in ways outside of who I am attracted to. I mean, defining exactly what those ways are, I think, is the bigger conversation. But a really obvious place is culture, you know, like that I belong to a history and a culture mm-hmm. that I am a part of both uh historically and in terms of what my life looks like now um and i think that that's important i think culture is important i think community is important yeah and that's what is kind of that's a significant thing that is excluded from uh something that says this is just about who we're attracted to
1: yeah it's actually really interesting that you bring that up because i think it can loop us back to almost where we started with this um talking about Dennis Altman's book. Um, have you read his, the, sort of, the 30 year later, 30 year later, 40 year later? Um, the End of the Homosexual that I came out not. a couple? I would so, have to... um, so, I mean, what's interesting about Homosexual, the first book, is that he uh, ends with a question, basically saying, the question... end of the homosexual question mark uh, asking that whether this sort of sexual liberation that you discussed at the start of the podcast and whether these these ideals of breaking down gender and sexuality norms and breaking down gender and sexual sexual identities uh, will lead to a situation where the terms homosexual and heterosexual i guess are no longer relevant because people are living freer sexual lives that are distinct from these identities and can move between these sorts of um, these spaces more and more uh, and so they don't they people are either that both don't and are unable to identify in one one way or the other because because they those identities don't work anymore. Um, And I think to an extent that is coming true in in relation to, so for example, uh, last year I saw some research that said that um, close to 50% of 18 to 24-year-olds in the United Kingdom no longer identify as entirely heterosexual or entirely homosexual. They fit somewhere on that spectrum, you know somewhere in the middle on the Kinsey scale of sexuality. Mm. So you could see some of that coming through. But what's interesting in the end of the homosexual is that Dennis talks a bit more you know he frames that question again he goes 40 years later what you know is that where we're at and I think he goes back to some of the things you were arguing in that he says, actually, you know, in the past I liked the idea of the end of the homosexual, but now I'm not so sure because there is value to homosexual identities and there is value to homosexual culture and community um, and there is value to those things still existing and people being able to identify within those communities and to have that history and to have all of those things come through so that they can feel like they are part of something and that that is okay that that is related to sexual identity and sex Sexual feelings um and I agree with him and I agree with you that those those communities and the the spaces the 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 places people go to the clubs etc are all still valuable and I sort of worry about the decline of them based on you know a a narrative that goes against that and that suggests that it's all just about who you love and who who as you said who gets you hard um so it's a really interesting loop back I guess to to where we started on this issue Mm. I mean, and,
0: and there's a there's a kind of... Um, a lot of people would take... To, to take something like the the deaths of, of gay venues, I mean, that's often seen as as a concrete piece of evidence that, that gay communities are dying, mm. are, are, are dissipating. Um, I mean, a lot of people would make the very logical, I think, argument that if these places are dying, it's because people are not supporting them, and that would seem to indicate that they don't need them. Um, yeah. and, and there's, I think that is an idea that shouldn't be dismissed um i think nostalgia is a dangerous thing to base a political movement on um you know if it is simply the idea of a queer community that in fact doesn't exist or or people don't want that we're fighting for i mean that that's kind of stupid an interesting uh piece of counter evidence i can't remember if i've talked about this on the podcast before maybe maybe not um maybe you and i have just had this conversation before but i wrote a story for the star observer uh uh, about a year ago about a a gay church in sydney Mm. um uh it's kind of expanded to sort of be more broadly lgbti but it was formed in the in this uh in the 60s, maybe even, called the Metropolitan Community Church. Um, started in, in the US and it's kind of spread around the world. And there are a few chapters in Australia, a few um, congregations in Australia. And I talked to a guy there who'd been going... So it was like the 30th anniversary or 40th anniversary of the this particular one. And I was talking to a guy who'd been going there for a long time. And he said that for the first time ever in... The last few years, they'd started seeing something that, yeah, something they'd never seen at the church before, which was um, young people coming uh, to the church who they said were were unchurched. Um, and I, he, he told <laughs> me that that means they've, they've never been to church before, basically. Yeah, yeah. So the the main people who go to this church are people who. Um, have been turned away from other churches, basically, due to reasons of homophobia mm-hmm. um, or, or or transphobia or, or whatever it is, um, and so they they go to the Metropolitan Community Church as a kind of safe church to to continue practicing their their faith. But these were people who'd never been to church before in their life, and and that was kind of outside of what the remit of of what the church was originally supposed to be. But you know, it being a church, they just kind of welcome everyone. Uh, and I said to him, "Why? I mean, that's really." Interesting and unusual. I mean, why is that happening, do you think? And he said to me that when he was younger, this was like kind of pre-AIDS crisis, he could exist entirely within a gay community. He could go to gay shops. He could go to a gay dentist. He could, you know, every, everything he needed, he could get from, from within the community. Yep. And then when the AIDS crisis happened everyone died i mean i mean not everyone importantly not everyone um and it's 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 a very important kind of um caveat to 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 make but you know these communities couldn't exist anymore because so many people were dying mm. and he said that the need for community doesn't go away regardless of kind of what that community looks like you know that's kind of open for debate but that need is is maybe something kind of essential of, about what it is to be a human. As reluctant as I would be to call anything essential about what it is to be a human, um, and so he said that these these kids were coming along because they had nothing else. I mean, they had no community, they had no access to community, and no access to community around something that they felt was a big part of themselves, which was their their sexual their sexual their sexuality. Uh, and so the church was kind of becoming this like a weird substitute for community. I mean. It's not such a weird substitute, given that's what churches have been forever. Yeah, yeah absolutely, absolutely. Um, but but particularly uh, weird, I guess. don't even consider themselves religious.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, that makes me think about when I was a kid, and, you know, I I had some issues as a kid, but nothing major. I had a very supportive family and all of those sorts of things. Yet, I still, uh, I went to a sort of a gay support group, uh, and I went... Uh, religiously, I went every week, you know, once once I first got the courage to go the first time. And a lot of the people there, it was a very similar thing. It was people searching for community, even people who didn't have the social support needs, who had supportive families, who had all those things. What they wanted was friends, people they could hang out with, people who had similar interests, people who were connected in some sort of way. And I think that's a really valuable part of, of our whole society and I think it's a very valuable part of the idea of a gay identity in a gay community um so I think that um yeah I think it is valuable and I think it's something we should um think about more
0: that's it for us today. Thanks a lot for listening.
1: We'll be back with a new episode in a couple of weeks, uh, which you can find on queers.podomatic.com. You can now also subscribe to us on iTunes. Very just, exciting. Very, very exciting. Um, just search for Queers uh, and we should appear. Uh, and please, please, please leave us a review to help us with rankings and tell your friends and family about us um, so we can get more people listening.
0: Hmm.
1: Uh, in the meantime, you can catch me on at Simon Copland on Twitter.
0: I'm at Ben C. Riley R-I-L-E-Y, on Twitter.
1: And thanks all, and we'll see you next time.
0: Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman.